This year class will involve the life of Prophet Muhammad from his from just before his birth up until the migration to Medina, what is known as the Hijrah. That'll be the first part, and that may take somewhere between four to six months. The second part will be from the establishment of the city of Medina to the just after the death of Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, and that will probably take another four to six months also. It will be an in-depth class, so I do suggest that you bring uh, pencils and paper with you to take notes. I uh, will probably give classes, inshallah. I'm sorry, I'll turn it down just a little bit. No problem. I'm going to probably step away from the mic a little bit. Is this okay now? I'm just step, probably pull back from the mic a little bit, and that may make it a little bit easier on everyone's ears. Okay. So, inshallah, this class will be very in-depth. So, uh, take your notes, inshallah. I do intend to have a few quizzes here and there. And if you have questions... You can always email me or or send them through. Um, usually, send, email is probably the best way for me to get them. Inshallah. So, beginning this class, Inshallah, we're going to start off by first trying to understand what is the reason for studying the Sirah. What is the reason for studying the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? And you got to forgive me. I give a lot of khutbah, so my hands will move around a lot. So uh, that's way I've been trained in giving khutbahs and speeches. So. Just forgive me if I accidentally knocked on the mic or anything. It's just me being expressive with my hands. But understanding the Sirah is important for many reasons. For one thing, Prophet Muhammad is our example. He is our example. He's the one that we are supposed to model our lives after. We have to follow him in his traditions and every as best as we most possibly can. The speech of Allah, the word of Allah, Al-Quran, much of it centers around the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Much of it is actually based upon things that happened in his life. Even some surahs that you know and say all the time, There's if you, when you read the tafsir, much of it actually has to do with the life of Prophet Muhammad. For instance, Surah Al-Kawthar. Surah Al-Kawthar, we all know it. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. The translation of that is, uh, Verily we have given you Al-Kawthar, uh, and do not worship, I mean, Verily we have given you Al-Kawthar, so pray to Allah and sacrifice, Verily your enemies will be cut off. Now this came to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu as a result of some of the disbelievers, the pagans, making fun of him, saying that his lineage will be cut off because his son died. His son, uh, it may have been for Abdullah, it was for uh, his first son, uh, which was Qasim. Because his son Qasim died, they made fun of him and said that his lineage will end with him. Because he had a bunch of girls, and this was his first son, and his son died. And so they made fun of him, saying that his son died. And that, so therefore, he will not have, his lineage will not go any beyond his own generation. And so Allah was comforting him by saying that even though, for in Allah's wisdom, Allah took his son away, Allah granted him something much better than that in Al-Kawthar, which is a river in Jannah, a river in paradise. So Prophet Muhammad was given this gift and this, and this news that he would receive Al-Kawthar as a response, as a way of comforting him from not only the death of his son, but also from the, the mockery that the pagans put upon him. 
And as and as we can see, of course, that came out to be true. Of course, Prophet Muhammad will be granted paradise. We know that. But also, his lineage was not necessarily cut off. It did it did continue on through his daughter Fatima and her sons Hassan and Hussein. It did continue on from there. But not beyond that, though. If you look at it today. The name Muhammad is the most popular name in the world, no matter what language you speak. Muhammad is in many people's names, both men and women, you know, so either first name or last name. So his lineage was not cut off at all. Whereas those who made fun of him, who knows who they are? We have to, I'll have to do some research to try and find the names to find out who, who it was that actually made fun of him. So the people who made fun of him, actually, their lineage was cut off. But this is just an example how Allah, how Allah revealed certain parts of the Quran that were based around Prophet Muhammad's life, either directly or indirectly. Another example is Surah Al-Nasr. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Iza jaa nasrullahi wal وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَّابًا When the help of Allah comes and the victory, and you see people entering into the religion in crowds, فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ Glorify your Lord with praises and seek His forgiveness. Verily, He is the one who accepts repentance. This, uh, according to the Tafsir, this surah was actually revealed, basically um, acknowledging or notifying Prophet Muhammad of his impending death. Letting him know that the victory, the help and the victory has come. They are con- the Muslims have conquered Mecca and the help of Allah has come. And now... Allah is telling him that his mission is complete. People are entering into Islam in droves, and now he has to prepare for his own death. His death will be coming soon. It's time for him to prepare for his own death by seeking Allah's forgiveness and by glorifying Allah with praises. So we can see one thing we see is most important is that if Prophet Muhammad was advised to seek forgiveness from Allah, what does that say about us? But also we can see how chapters of the Quran where revelation came down for Prophet Muhammad or about his life, even about his death, letting letting him know that his death was coming soon and to prepare for it. So this is why, and this is a speech of Allah. So therefore, we see that how important it is to understand the life of Prophet Muhammad sallam, because in understanding his life, it will help us to understand the Quran as well. And as you and as you learn the Quran and learn the tafsir and the meaning behind the Quran and you learn about the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and you learn uh, about hadith, you will see that you know all this all these things are interconnected. Everything works together. Everything flows together. Nothing stands alone by itself. Tafsir works with hadith, which works with the seerah, which works with the Quran. It all works together. It is all really a, a beautiful fluid understanding of Islam and by enhancing yourself in one aspect of Islam whether whether it is a seerah or the tafsir or something else it will help you understand all other aspects of it indirectly eventually inshallah and so that's one of the most important reasons for understanding the seerah is to get an overall understanding of Islam so with that in hand inshallah we're going to move forward actually into the actual the actual course in and of itself and we are going to start with trying to understand the life of or life of the society that Prophet Muhammad was born in, the culture and the society that he was born in, in the Arabian Peninsula over 1400 years ago. The Arabian Peninsula is no secret, is primarily desert. You know, he's born into a desert society uh, where people, the Arabs were still mostly nomads. A few had settled down 
and had begun to uh, build cities like Mecca and Medina and a few others. Uh, Medina at the time was called Yathrib. But for the most part, most of the Arabs of his time were primarily uh, nomads, Bedouins, still traveling from place to place to place. And then a few settled down to establish these cities, as I mentioned. The nomadic lifestyle was very harsh. It's living in the desert, living off the land, living off of animals. You know, you, you know, your ride is also your food. <laughs> your camel is also your food. And so if your camel dies, you may starve as well as be stuck in the middle of the desert. It's a very harsh lifestyle. At the same time, however, it's also very monotonous. Because this harsh and monotonous lifestyle led to two things. For one, it led to a strong dependency upon your fa- upon the family and upon lineage and upon tribal relations. That became a very strong thing because that's all you had. You didn't have a government. As Bedouins, they didn't have a government to protect them. They didn't have police officers and any of that stuff. All they had was their family. So family had to stick together. We, we say that's those things now, but back then it was a reality. Family really did have to stick together and family still together no matter what it's just a, it's, you had to really mess up for a family in ancient Arabia to get rid of you or to disown you but that hardly ever happened blood was seriously thicker than water in the in the traditional Arabian lifestyle and it still is to a, to, to a large extent but especially back then it was very very important family lifestyle was extremely family relations was extremely important because as once again that's all they had but also the monotony the monotony was, you know, you get up, you know, tend the sheep or look for water, move from one place to the other. It was the same thing over and over and over and over again. There was no school. There was no work. Basically, there was work, but not going to back and forth to work. There was very, very little warfare. So every now and then, yes, family, you know, warfare will break out. But that was very sporadic and far, fewer and far between. You know, people generally died by starvation, dehydration, sicknesses, and stuff like that. Warfare was not really a cause of death before the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Not to say that it was afterwards either. I don't want to get that impression, so I want to be careful there. But it was also a very monotonous lifestyle. People did the same thing over and over and over and over again. And this led to the Arabs becoming very... Uh, very involved in poetry. To pass the time, you know, there was no drawing. You know, they didn't have pencils and paper and stuff to draw and stuff like that. What they did have was a very melodic and rhythmic language that could be manipulated and turned in all sorts of ways to create beautiful pieces of poetry. And so a culture of poetry became a culture of poetry became established in the ancient Arabs of the time before Prophet Muhammad saw before Islam. And that continued on all the way up until even now. However, the Quran kind of supersedes, really, not kind of, really supersedes all that stuff now. But still, Arab poetry is still very popular even today. But in that time, it was extremely important. Poetry was, you know, hate to to put it like this, but similar to the way rap battles were once at one point in time where you could bring somebody low or raise somebody up simply by dissing them in a rap battle. Poetry was similar to that, just on a much higher level. In a much higher level, the people who who uh, they would have yearly competitions at the Kaaba for the poetry, and the ten best poems were etched in gold and hung up on the Kaaba. That's how that's how important poetry was to them. So then that came as a result, basically, of not having much else to do in life other than care for the animals and move from place to place to place. But even when the when the Bedouins eventually settled down, the love of poetry continued on with them. Now, going back a little bit to understand why another reason to understand why the um, 
we're going we're going to want to focus on Prophet Muhammad's life. We know that Prophet Muhammad is was a a um, a primary example for us. He is the he is the only example. He is the primary example we can follow. We can follow the example of the companions as well, but his example was the best of all. And we see this. You know, I gotta look something up very very quickly. We can see his example. The fact that there was no other prophet whose lifestyle was as documented as Prophet Muhammad sallallahu So we don't really have much information about the lifestyle of Prophet Isa salam. And then the next, the most important prophet other than those two is probably Prophet Musa salam. Now we do have some details about his life. And going back to Prophet Isa salam, Prophet Isa, even if we did have details about his life, he didn't have a complete rounded life, so to speak. And the fact that he was never married, he never had children, he was never a ruler, he was never, you know, he had his own disciples whom he had uh, some authority over. But, you know, Prophet Musa, salam, he was married. We have more details about his life. Most of it outside, other than the Quran, most of it comes from the Taurat or the Old Testament. And that's, you know, we know he was born, put into the river, taken in by Pharaoh's family. He grew up in the Pharaoh's family, killed a guy, ran to, ran to Midian, was ra- married uh, uh Prophet Shu'ab's daughter, most likely Prophet Shu'ab's daughter. Then got sees a message in the fire, comes back to Egypt, and eventually leads his people out of Egypt. We know that part of his story. We know we know all those things. And so he did have a, a more rounded life in Prophet Isa Prophet Musa was a general. He was a ruler. He laid down laws and everything. He had a family. He, you know, he had a much more rounded life, a much more complete life than Prophet Isa or, or in the Old Testament. So we can't really do much with Prophet Musa salam's life because we don't have the information about it. We don't know how he treated his wife. All we really know is that he got married. Even in the Quran, only mentioned pretty much he got married, and you could, you could infer some things from what the Quran has. But all we know is that he got married, and he had, a, and you know, we know that what he had to do in order to get married had to work for Shuaib for seven years, and so forth and so on. We know those sort of things. Uh, we don't know for sure if he had any children. Uh, I don't know if the Old Testament says it. I really forgot if he had children or not. But I don't know if he had children. I assume he had children because there's a part in the Quran where it says he was traveling with his family. And generally, when someone says family, it means more than just a wife. So maybe he had children when he, before he saw the fire. So maybe Prophet Musa alayhi salam, had children. We saw some of the interaction between him and his brother, uh, Prophet Harun alayhi salam. We saw some of that interaction. But we see very, very little act- interaction between uh, Prophet Musa alayhi salam, and his mother. Or even Prophet Musa salam, and um, Asiya, the wife of Fir'aun, who actually raised him like a mother. We, there's very little a- interaction between there other than you know, when she first found him and took him into, into the Pharaoh's family. So for all these reasons, Prophet Musa salam, while of course we, we love him as we love all the prophets, we can't follow his lifestyle because we just don't have the information. However, for Prophet Muhammad, for, for, for Prophet Muhammad salam, we know how he treated his wife. We know how he treated his children. We know how he treated his companions. We know how he behaved as a minority. We also know how he behaved when he had the when he, when he had the majority, when he had the power. We know that sometimes he had to have people executed for committing certain crimes. We know that some he know that he gave judgments for certain things. We know that sometimes he pardoned people for certain offenses. Sometimes you know we know much more about his life. We know how he, we know how he went to the bathroom. We know his. His, uh, without getting too graphic, we know how he, um, his relationship with his wife, as far as his inti- his intimacy with his with his wives, we know why he married Aisha at such a young age. We know why he married Khadijah at such an old, at such an advanced age. You know, we know all these things 
much more. We know much more about the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam than we know about any other messenger of, messenger of Allah. But we have much more information about Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and so we can use that and use the information to guide our own lives. And we do this every day of our lives. We do this as far as you know, what we dress and the way we live, and you know, we we say the fact that I'm saying Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam after his name is because he ordered us to say it. He advised us to say it, and so I'm saying it every time I say his name. We say the same thing, and so this is all just part of the 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 fact that we take Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu as a role model in many different respects. Now, as far as the, the sources of the Sita are concerned, the primary source of the Sita is Al-Quran, the Quran, the Book of Allah. And I've already told you so far how there are certain surahs, many surahs actually, that are based upon the life or based upon certain events that happened in the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So we already talked about that. And so you can see that the primary source is the Quran. You know, there's no... Uh, fault in that. There's no mistakes in that. There's there's no covering things up. If we could cover things up in the Quran, you know, it would be, you know, we'd probably cover up his marriage to to uh, Zainab because there's controversy around that. If there's thing, if, if there's way, to, and that's specifically in the Quran. And so, if Muslims could cover things up, that would be something we would cover up. Or other things that you know, when a lot, you know the. The verse they always say, "Kill them whenever you see them," and stuff like that. You know, we could cover things up. You know, we would cover we would cover all these things that make you know some weak weak Muslims cringe and squirm. You know, we would cover these things up, but you know, we can't. Allah has protected the Quran from now until the day of judgment, and there's no covering up, covering it up. And Prophet Muhammad's life, Prophet Muhammad's life, is chronicled. Much of it is chronicled in the Islam, in, in the Quran, both before the Hijrah and after the Hijrah. So the Qur'an is the primary source of the Sita, the primary source material for the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The secondary sources would be the six uh, books of Hadith. And I'm going to miss one of them. I know I always miss one of them. But it's, you know, uh, Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, um, uh, Sunan Abi Dawood, Tinmidhi, uh, Ibn Majah. And I guess it's the sixth one I can't remember right now. But also Muatta Imam Malik and... Um, Imam Ahmed's Isnad, Imam Ahmed's um, uh, Musnad, Imam, ah- Imam Ahmed's Musnad. Uh, these are the primary sources of Sira after the Quran. Imam Ahmed's uh, Musnad is probably the largest of all the collections of hadith. It has it contains uh, I gotta look up uh, thousands upon thousands of hadith. All of them are not authentic, but still, you know, it's still a very good source of of uh, the Prophet's life, as well as, of course, Bukhari and Muslim. Uh, Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim are accepted almost without question. So they're almost, they're not on the same level of authenticity as the Qur'an is, but the level of authenticity of Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim are very, very high. But all the all the books of Hadith are still important for learning about the life of Prophet Muhammad Now, when it comes to collecting the Sirah, the rules are not as stringent, they're not as strict and rigid as the rules of collecting the hadith. For the collecting the hadith, the different scholars and imams who collected the hadith, they have very, very, very strict rules. But for the people who collected the Sita and who wrote their Sita books, they weren't as strict. So they were much more willing to take um, to take reports that may not have been as authentic or did not have as much strong or uh, reliable sources behind them as the hadith were. For the hadith, uh, with the exception of maybe Imam Ahmed, you know, the the imams who put those together didn't really, you know, they didn't play any of that. Uh, you know, 
uh, hadith had to be very, very, the sources had to be very accurate, had to be several chains, several chains leading to it, or it had to be very, very strong, you know, unbroken chains, the reporters had to have, had to have the highest qualities, you know, they didn't play with that. But for the Sido, we we're much more rigid with it. And the reason is because the Sido is not used to make rulings, you know, I'm not going to, I can write a, a book of Sida and you're not going to take that and make a ruling of Islam with it. You shouldn't at least. That'd be a very silly thing to do. And, you know, we're not going to make a ruling out of even the other Sidas. Um, for instance, a very popular a book of Sida, a Sida that was written. We're not going to take that and make rulings out of it. But the books of a Hadith, we make rulings out of it. We make fatwas, fatwas from that. And so that's the importance of the reason why the level of, um, of rigidity is so much higher for hadith than it is for the seda. So for the seda, we can be a little more flexible with the reports that we take. And but the, with all that, however, there are many, you know, many reports that come through the seda or that come um, about the life of Prophet Muhammad that are just, you know, not really, you know, true. Some of them are just really out there. So we try to at least stick to as much authenticity, authenticity as we can. And may Allah guide us in that. I mean. Now, after the books of Hadith, the next most important source of the Sira would be from um, would be from the companions. The companions, of course, all of their reports were not written in the books of Hadith. You know, sometimes the reports were taken by other people or written down in other books and so forth and so on. So, all of the the things that the companions say that may not have been recorded in the Hadith will be the next primary source of Sira, and. This is, of course, obvious. The companions that live with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu they knew him, they fought alongside him, they worked with him, you know, many of the, some of them were related to him, you know, so they knew him. So, of course, we're going to get our, our primary source, well, he, this, the stories of the Sahabas or the reports of the Sahabas that may not be reported in the Hadith, in the books of Hadith, would be the third most important source of the Hadith. And then beyond that, we have the different books written by the Tabi, uh, or the different books reported by the Tabi'een, which are the followers after the, the generation, the students of the Sahaba, and the Tabi Tabi'een, and the generation after them, and all the other scholars who came after them who wrote books. But the primary three sources are, of course, the Quran, the Hadith, the reports of the Sahaba, and then Tabi, the Tabi'een, the Tabi Tabi'een. So those are the primary sources of the Sira, and... I'm not going to go through all the different, there are many different books of Sira, something you may have heard of, like Ibn Ishaq, um, um, Tariqa Tabari is a very popular one. Uh, we're not going to, I'm not going to go through all those, but it's just good that you know that there are other sources of Sira if you want to go out and, and find some of them, inshallah. Now the word Arab, we're going back into the, we're going back to the, the, the situation of, of Arabia before the birth of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa the situation in Arabia, the Arabia was flanked by two powerful nations. To their northwest was the was the Byzantine or the Eastern Roman Empire. They were the vestiges, what was left of the ancient Roman Empire, but they're still very powerful. They're still a very powerful force to be reckoned with. They were on the on the downside. They were kind of sliding down in history, but they were still probably the most powerful nation in the world at that time. This is kind of like the United States is now. Still very powerful, still a force to be reckoned with, but, you know, you can all tell that things are going downhill. The the other powerful nation were the Persians, the Sassanid Empire. That was to their northeast. Persia, which is now you know, Iran, Iraq, um, several other parts of, um, of, um, of Central Asia. 
though that was the uh, the next powerful empire, and they were always rival. They were always rivals with the Byzantines, with the Romans. In the Quran, when you in the Quran in the, and in the Hadith, when you hear the word Romans, they're really talking about the Byzantines, the Eastern Roman, the Eastern Roman Empires, and they were they had more of a Greek culture than a classical Latin culture. And I'm going way off point. I don't want to go too far into that because give me talking about history, and I'll go I'll go too far down. So I'm gonna try to keep on point, but. We're talking about when they say Rome in the Quran is really talking about the Byzantines, and that was because they still call themselves Roman, even though they didn't control Rome and they weren't living in Rome. The capital was in Constantinople, but they believed that they were they were they were really the vestiges of the Eastern Roman Empire. So that's why they called themselves Rome, and everybody called themselves Roman anyway, even though they were hundreds of miles away from Rome. Mashallah. Okay, so those are the two primary forces. But there are other forces as well. There's also the Abyssinian Empire. Where Abyssinian Empire is kind of like a, a, a vassal of the Roman Empire because they're both Christian. Abyssinia, which, which is now Ethiopia. Uh, they're both Christian nations. Uh, they, and the Christianity was, very, was closely related. The Christianity that was practiced in Abyssinia is um, Eastern Orthodox, it's kind of like, it's called, it's Coptic Christianity, first of all, but it's very similar to Eastern Orthodox Christianity, which is what is pre- what was practiced in the Byzantine Empire, what is now practiced in, in uh, Russia and the Balkans and places like that. Now, there are three different types of Arabs, so to speak. Uh, there are the Arabized Arabs. These are Arabs who are now Arab now, but their lineage, they're not, they, the lineage doesn't come from, um, I guess, authentic Arab stock, I guess. These are people, basically people who moved into the Arabian Peninsula and adopted their ways and languages and customs. A primary example, of, the, of course, is Prophet Ismail, alayhi salam. We know the story of Prophet Ismail, alayhi salam. Um, his mother was Hajjar, who was, whose mother was Hajjar, who was an Egyptian slave and who was given to Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam. And Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam himself, was from Babylon. It was from what we now know as Babylon, which is now modern-day Iraq. So Prophet Ismail was a mixture of Egyptian and Babylonian. He had no Arab in him whatsoever. But you know the story how, um, you know, Sarah became, Hajjah became pregnant first, and then she had Prophet Ismail, and then sometime after that, several years after that, uh, Prophet Ibrahim, other wife, uh, Sarah, she became pregnant. And, you know, some say, I said this before, I got in trouble, but it's the truth, though. You know, Sarah got jealous, and so Allah inspired Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam, to send Hajjah away uh, to to a valley in the middle of Arabia, which turned out to be the beginning of the city of Mecca. And we know the story. You know, Hajjah came there. She went running between the mountains looking for water. She left her baby there. The baby kicked in the sand, and, uh, and she came back. Spring was coming up, which came out, which was, turned out to be uh, the well of Zamzam. And, you know, from there, uh, some nomadic, Arab tribes saw them and came in and uh, saw that saw the water, saw the birds flying above the water and came through and eventually established a city. So Prophet Ismail Islam, he learned Arabic from these from these nomadic Arabs, and from that point on, you know, his lineage were Arabized Arabs, the people who came from outside of Arabia into Arabia and basically, you know, accept um, took on Arab customs. If you want a more detailed uh, st- you know, detail about the story. I can't go into it, but I'm going to assume it's going to take a while to go through it. And you know, we can do it in the, in the next class if you want to. If you really do want more detail on that story of, of uh, Hajjad and Ismail Islam, it it is a, it is a part of the Sita, I guess, because it leads all to it. But it's 
It's more or less a class. If we're going to do you know, lives of the prophets, it would be more, I think it would be more appropriate for a class like that. And Allah knows best. The other type of Arabs are the pure Arabs. Now, these are Arabs who came up from Yemen. Basically, uh, if you ask today, the Yemen, uh, people who come from Yemen speak the best Arabic. And the Arab stock generally flows from um, generally flows from Yemen. You know, Yemen is the is basically the source of of the Arab line, the Arab uh, ethnic group. Yemen is a source of that group, of the source of Arab ethnic group, and Yemenis today still, and everybody seems to say that they speak the best Arabic, and I'm going to have to accept it as as being the fact, being as being true. So. Yemen, uh, the Arabs who, who lineage comes from Yemen, they are what we call pure Arabs. And then you also have disappeared Arabs, and these are people like the Ad and the Thamud, these people who were Arab or lived in Arabia but no longer, um, there's no, you know, their society and culture has been wiped out, either by punishments from Allah or, you know, they just died out from other natural causes. But whatever, these are disappeared Arabs, people who lived in Arabia, May have, been, had, may have been related to Arabs in some way, but they no longer exist. Now, one of the th- we have to look at the reason. Why did Allah send the message of Islam? Why did he send Prophet Muhammad to this desolate nation, to this de- Muslim nation, but this desolate part of the world where there, was, there were no really built-up cities, People, most of the population was still walking, you know, traveling from place to place with everything they, they own on the back of a camel. You know, it's a very rough, rugged lifestyle. Not, why didn't he send it to someplace like, like Constantinople, which had an established city, which had a lot of, you know, high culture, had people who were well-read and read, well, very knowledgeable, had huge libraries, had a history going back thousands of years. Why didn't Allah send the message of Islam to that nation? Why didn't he send it to, to, um, to Persia, where once again, you know, they were they were Zoroastrians, you know, fire worshippers, but still, you know, Allah could have sent it to them. I mean they they the Arabs were were, were worshipping idols, they weren't much they weren't much better. So why did Allah the Persians, however, had once again thousands of years of history. They had a very uh, a very advanced culture and society. Why did Allah send Islam to this group of people who were just a little bit above, who were just barely entering into what we might call civilization? They're barely civilized. You know, they were barely, there are very few nations, I mean, very few cities around. They had no king. They had no established government. Why did Allah send it to them? One of the reasons that some people, some scholars uh, say is that the Arabs, because of the isolation of the desert and because of the difficulty what, uh, that, present, that was present, uh, presented in con- trying to conquer the Arabs or trying to conquer the desert, because it's not necessarily conquering the Arabs, it's conquering the desert that's the problem. Conquering people is one thing, but conquering the terrain is something totally different. Because they were isolated from the from the Persians and the Romans and the Abyssinians, uh, they their culture, even though it was it did have its problems in the fact that there was a lot of shirk, their culture was still they didn't have too many of these other vestiges of these other societies. While the Romans may have been may have had a lot of high culture and a powerful army and everything, they had a lot of corruption within themselves also. The Romans had a lot of infighting. I already told you how. They had different sects of Christianity within themselves, how the Eastern Orthodox, they broke away from the Western Roman Empire, which was what we now know of as Catholicism. And, you know, they broke away from that, and there were a whole lot of other little things going on. Also, at that time, uh, at this time, the, the, uh, tr- the concept of the Trinity was starting to take hold now. Uh, before, 
I won't say now I'm gonna say necessarily right before, but there weren't too many people who were still following the true teachings of Esau, alayhi salam. The Trinity had taken hold. The Roman, the Byzantine Empire was definitely Trinity, but definitely believed in the Trinity for sure. There's no doubt about that. They believed in Trinity back then. They believe in it now. And so the Trinity was was basically established over all of Christianity and the few people who continue to just consider themselves Christian as far as they followed Isa alayhi salam, but they didn't worship him, that was slowly and slowly, slowly dying off. And they, and so by the time, you know, maybe, I have no idea when they completely died off, but by the time Prophet Muhammad came around, Trini, the, Trini, the idea of the Trinity was the primary idea of Christianity. And it's mentioned in the Quran uh, when Allah says, do not, when Allah tells them, do not say three. By the time of Prophet Muhammad the Trinity had been well established. The Persians were even worse. As bad as the Romans were, the Persians were even worse. The Persians, they were fire worshippers. That's one thing. But their society was rife with immoral actions and immoral deeds. And it was they were just completely, you know, it was just, I won't say Sodom and Gomorrah over there, but it was like Las Vegas. It was just... So the Greeks, who were mostly Christian by now, they are mostly involved in philosophy and debates and stuff like that. And so all of these different things were would have been detrimental to the initial stages of Islam. And because these cultures and other societies didn't come into Arabia, you know, the Arabs were isolated from these corruptions, from the factionalism of the Romans and the and the immorality of the Persians and the philosophizing of the Greeks, the, Muslim, the Arabs before Arabia, they were isolated from that. They just had their own problems to deal with. They didn't have to deal with all these other cultural things coming along with. And also, there were still some vestiges of the religion of Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam, still there. And, you know, what we know as uh, circumcision. Circumcision, you know, we, we know what circumcision is for boys. This was, at, this was a part of Arab culture even before Islam came. It didn't just come up when Prophet Muhammad became the prophet. The Arabs were getting them, themselves circumcised even before then. This is one, one of those few things that stayed on from Prophet Ibrahim and Prophet Ismail that passed on down to the Arabs of the, of the Prophet's time, even before Islam. So while they may have been worshipping idols and everything, they still had that some of the essence of, uh, of, of, of the religion of Ibrahim, which is, of course, Islam. And also the Hajj was in practice. Now, people were coming to the Kaaba. They were making pilgrimage to the Kaaba for the wrong reason. They're coming there to worship idols and run around the Kaaba naked and all sorts of crazy things. But it was still it still shows that there was some vestiges of Islam, of true Islam, still in their practice. A few of them. And even in the Quran says that the Arabs they before Prophet, they believed in Allah. They called Allah Allah. However, they believed they had to worship these idols in order to get to Allah. They did not believe they did not believe in an afterlife either. They believed that everything they were going to get was going to come in this life and there was no afterlife. And that's where much of their deviation comes in. Because if you don't when you don't believe that you're going to be receive punishment or reward in the next life, what's to stop you from acting any way you want to act in this life? Really, what's to stop a person? And we see now, and even going off, getting a little bit on my member right now, but we see now in our own society, as our society becomes more and more secularized and even leaves their own Judeo-Christian foundings, I'm talking about you know, American society, as they leave, get further and further away from their own Judeo-Christian uh, you know, foundings and, fundam and fundamentals, this, the uh, society becomes more and more corrupt. They become more secular. People begin to stop believing in God, stop believing in Allah, stop believing in the hereafter. They become more and more corrupt, and morality goes further and further down. And this is just a, a, re a part of 
removing oneself away from being God conscious. And there were certain things that led to the up that led to these um, the Yemen the the Arabs from Yemen moving up into what we now know of as as our Central Arabia, Mecca, Medina, Taif, and that, that area. We all know the story of. Um, we may know the story, but we all know the story of the of uh, Ashabun Uhudud, the companions of the ditch. Uh, this is a story where the uh, I'm not going to get the whole story, but the boy, the story of the boy and the king. If any of you ever got the video from Astrolab or whatever, and saw the cartoon with your kids, or whatever. There's a boy who you know learned with who learned under who was supposed to study under a magician, and he this is in what is now known of, known of as Yemen, post under the magician, but instead he met a monk. He started studying Christianity, uh, studying under the monk. And eventually over certain events, the entire nation converted to Christianity. The king of that country didn't like it. And so he built a fire and started throwing all the Christians and all the, all the people who they were believers. Now when we say Christians here, Allah called them believers in the Quran. Allah says in, in, um, in Surah Al-Buruj, those who make fitna or make trials for believing men and believing women, their punishment will be in the fire. So if Allah calls them, calls them believers, and, and this is, you can take it or leave it, but to me, this seems as if they would not be worshiping Isa alayhi salam if Allah calls them believers. You know, Allah would have called them people of the book or something else like that. He called them believers, and so therefore... And uh, it would appear that these people, while they may have been followers of Isa alayhi salam, they may have been following Christianity, they're not worshipping Isa alayhi salam. So these are believers who were killed by this king. When the Romans found out about this, they used their vassal, the Abyssinians, to send an army into Yemen to get rid of the, that king who killed all those Christians. And so the Abyssinians, they sent one of the, they sent two of their generals, and one of, his name, one of, the, one of the generals was named Abraha. They went into Yemen took over the king took over this kingdom where the people were killed and slaughtered or, or removed the king who was there and established their own their own kingdom and Abraha eventually became king Abraha built this huge temple um, and we're going to get into this he built this huge temple to try and um, attract the Arabs to there and it was rival you know he couldn't pull the Arabs away from making Hajj to the Kaaba and of course you know he got the army of elephants and went on and tried to knock down the Kaaba and we know how that story turned out but the point is that after all, this was an example of all the upheavals that was going on in Southern Arabia. And this led to a lot of people leaving Southern Arabia where all these problems were and going up the uh, Arabian Peninsula towards Central Arabia, which is Mecca, Medina, and these places, and establishing themselves there. So this is showing you how certain groups came into the Central Arabia, including including the Arabs. And so the Arabs from the south, the pure Arabs, many of them were moving up to the north up to Central and Northern Arabia to escape the political upheaval and the problems that are going on in Yemen and Saba and places like that. And inshallah, um, getting close to an hour now. I've got about 10 minutes. I want to save some time for Q&A. Just want to, one last thing. I Normally, I will have to leave exactly at 3 o'clock. Today, however, I'm, I don't work today, so I can stay a little bit longer. If that's, I don't know if that's okay, if you guys have uh, another scheduling, so I don't want to go over anyone else's time. So if, if, you have, if I have to leave at a certain time, you know, it's fine, inshallah. But I do want to cover one thing. Uh, this may have to wait till next time. But I want to also... Okay. All right, so good. No class before me. So I'll, I just want to explain this one last thing, and then we'll go into Q&A, inshallah. Now, as I mentioned earlier... Arabia, or the, uh, the area that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was born in, was initially founded and established by Prophet Ibrahim Alayhi Salam and Prophet Ismail. And we know, of course, that they worshipped Allah and Allah only. 
And of course, it's Prophet uh, Ismail, who was the leader of his people at the time when he grew up and after the building of the Kaaba with his father, he was the leader of his people. And of course, he would have taught his people to worship Allah only. So how is it that we get to this point now where just before the birth of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi we got 360 idols in the Kaaba. How do we get from one worshiping one God to worshiping 360? How did that happen? Well, the problem with that, the way it happened, it was a gradual process. It didn't happen overnight. I've heard two different, make sure my hand's in the camera, I heard two different uh, theories about how it happened, and I'll go through both of them, inshallah, and then we'll go into the question and answer. The first theory, and the first way it happened was that there was a man named Ibn Nuhay. Ibn Nuhay, he traveled to Syria on a business trip. And when he went to Syria, uh, he saw people there worshiping different idols. And so he took this idea, this idea of worshiping idols and took it back with him to, uh, to Mecca and to the Kaaba. And that practice from there spread from him onwards to everybody else. And over the generations, everyone was worshiping idols after a while. A more detailed explanation that I've heard which kind of makes sense to me also, but it's my opinion that it makes sense. But I, you know, I did hear it from a good source, but Allah knows best. And most likely it's probably a, a combination of both of these factors. Maybe not be just be one thing over the other. Was that, of course, uh, Prophet Ibrahim and Prophet Ismail, they built the Kaaba. Prophet Ibrahim would come back periodically to visit his son. Eventually he died. Prophet Ismail is the leader of a small growing community of Arabs in what we now in the Valley of Bakka, later to be known, later later to be known as Mecca. So eventually Ismail will also die, as well as his mother, um, Hajjad, and the people around him. They will all, they will all die. But the, the population of Mecca continues to grow, though. It has this well here. The nomads are tired of wandering, wandering the desert, and they'll come in, and eventually they'll grow. People will have kids. There's no warfare. So, you know, you got this, this um, you got the well here, and people are learning how to trade between Yemen and Syria, and Bundy's coming in, and people are still coming in for the Hajj. So, Life is fairly easy compared to the rest of Arabia. Life in Mecca is fairly easy. With an easy population and with abundant money and food, of course, will, I'm sorry, with an easy life and with abundant money and food, of course, will lead to increased population. There'll be less infanticide, uh, less children, fewer children dying in the first two years of life, and people will naturally live a little bit longer. Now, still, the average, average lifespan back then was still probably about 40 to 45 years old, but still, Everybody else is dying at 30 years old. 40, 45 is not too bad. The point is this, that it was a more established society, and so the population grew. As the population grew, people moved further and further away from the Kaaba. And the teachings of Ismail al-Islam became more and more in the past. It became more and more of a distant memory. So when people were moved away from the Kaaba, you know, they they love the Kaaba and they love the stories of the Kaaba and they loved in the stories of Ismail and his father Ibrahim Salam. And so as they moved away from the Kaaba, they would maybe take a little piece of stone with them, not to worship it, but to remind them of the Kaaba. It was remind so they couldn't revisit the Kaaba every day because they lived so far away. They could probably only visit it maybe once a year. Maybe they could even make Hajj every year. So they don't know when the next time they're gonna to come to the Kaaba. So they take a little piece of stone with them and take it back with them. And they take it to their house and they, you know, put it in the windowsill or whatever they had back then and you know just as a reminder and so but eventually these people die and then the children will, will, will come along and they see their parents they know their parents have always had this stone and they don't know where it came from they heard the stories about it but they don't really know much about Ibrahim and Ismail all they know is what their parents told them 
and they see this stone. And so they say, okay, well, dad always loved the stone. I'm going to love the stone too. You know, remember family lineage, family ties is very, very important. And so dad loved the stone. I'm going to, I'm going to love the stone too. I don't know what it's about, but I'm going to do what dad did. And so he also revered the stone. He didn't necessarily worship it, but he still revered it. He made sure nobody touched it. He polished it every now and then, and, you know, made sure it was always in the, in the highest part of the room. He just made sure that that stone was taken care of. But eventually that generation would die. The next generation would come along. Now, they only know, they may have heard some stories from their grandparents about Ibrahim and Ismail, but it's even more distant for them. All they know is that their father and their grandfather used to have the stone with them all the time, and they're going to do the same thing. They're going to follow along with the same thing. And so while, while their dad and their granddad, all they did was just, you know, revere the stone and, and look at it longingly and remember the good old days of Prophet Ibrahim Salam. This now third generation, you know, they come upon hard times and they're like, why did I always look at that stone? He was always looking at that stone. There's something about that stone that's that's good, something powerful about that stone. And so he would hold that stone and say, Stone, if you can do something for me, you know, help me out of the situation. And Shaitan will creep in and give him what he wants. Or Allah will test him and give him what he wants. And then now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden the Aqidah is changing completely. And now he's not only holding the stone, he's actually praying with the stone. He might not be praying to it, but he's praying with it because he feels more comfortable having the stone with him. And then the next generation, now there's a fourth generation, is their great is their great grandparents who knew Ibrahim and Ismail. They saw their father praying with the stone, but they don't know that he's just praying with the stone. They for all they know, they're praying to the stone. And so from that point on you have Shirk. And from that point on, just goes and grows and grows. And the generations that got further and further away from Ibrahim and Ismail, you know, Shirk became just part of the life. And this happened for everyone uh, over and over and over. And most likely it was a combination of both of these two factors. Perhaps, you know, cult- people traveling to other parts of the um, of the world around that time and bringing back foreign cultures and also people you know, doing, you know, why we have to be careful of bid'ah or innovation because one small innovation has now led to shirk for the for an entire for entire, entire generation years later. So, excuse me. <coughs> so we have to be careful about innovation because this is what it can lead to. And so I just wanted to get into that and talk about that for a while. And we're going to talk about some more about the the lifestyle and the religion of and the culture of Arabia, inshallah, in the next class. So. Now is the time I'm going to open up for Q&A, inshallah. If anyone has questions, comments, or, if, you know, if I spoke too fast, I thought I was raised in New York, I can speak very fast. So if you have anything to ask me, please uh, go ahead. So go ahead through one moment. Alright, uh, first question the sister is asking about uh, Prophet Muhammad's uncle and his family what religion did they follow? Uh, his, from the what I understand, is, what I understand um, his uncle, you know he died without taking shahada and definitely, uncle I mean Abu Talib because uh, he, he had other uncles um, he had another uncle named Abbas um, from what I understand Abbas did accept Islam uh, but he just kept a secret However, his uncle Abu Lahab, you know, he, he was cursed by Allah, so he definitely didn't accept Islam. But primarily, Prophet Muhammad's family, uh, from what we understand, those who did not accept Islam were idol worshippers also. Um, that they, 
I mean, there's no indication that they didn't have um, that that they did anything else. There were some people who who followed a a um, a monotheistic religion called that people called Hanifan or Hanifa, which was based upon the religion of Ibrahim salam. However, other than I can't think of anyone in the Prophet's family who did that before Islam. Uh, I may, I'm not, this guy I can't think of it does not mean it's not true, but I just can't think of it off, off the top of my head right now. So chances are his family followed. Um, by that, I don't mean Khadijah and his daughters and all. I'm talking about the, um, his uncles and his mother, father, and those people. You know, they probably most likely were, were idol worshippers. I mean, they were, they actually, the Hashemite clan was responsible for maintaining the Kaaba. So. <laughs> They most likely were. Uh, they were the ones who maintained the Kaaba as far as making sure the pilgrims had enough food to eat and everything else. So if they weren't worshiping the idols, they were certainly facilitating the worship of the idols. So they were definitely, you know, part of it. I'm certain they were part of it. Uh, Allah knows best, but they're part of it. And also there's a story of um, his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, when... Uh, I'm skipping ahead now. It's in the next side. But basically, his grandfather went to a soothsayer. Well, as far as... Well, the Arabs in general, they believed in Allah. They believed that Allah existed. They believed that there was a supreme deity, a supreme God named Allah over everything. But in order to... They used idols as intercessors. Uh, next question. Yeah, I'll be going... The battles won't come in... The, the next question the sister is asking about, she's a new convert and enjoys the class and wants to know, we'll go deeper into the stories of the battles and and stuff like that, and, you know, things like that. The battles will probably come, inshallah, but they'll be months from now. You know, I haven't even gotten to the Prophet's birth yet. So and then, I've been here for about an hour or so already. I haven't gotten to his birth yet. I haven't gotten to, you know, generations before his birth. So it's going, this is the deep class. So yeah, we're going to, it's going to, it's going to come, inshallah. But it's going to come some time. It's going to, it's going to take some time. So uh, it may it may be sometime after. I'm hoping to be able to start at least sometime uh, September, October, inshallah. Hopefully, uh, we'll see. Um, I, I don't want to miss anything at the same time. I don't want to rush myself. I mean, um, inshallah. Sister is asking if I'll, I can ask questions from the previous classes, inshallah, and um, so people can stay. Update on it. Yeah, we can do that, inshallah. That's no problem. Um, we can ask questions. I can actually, if you could give me one moment, get my iPad real quick. And actually, uh, really, really quickly, I did ask you guys to take notes. So um, I guess we can always do a real quick pop quiz very quickly. And anyone, uh, can you quickly name the? Can you quickly name the two superpowers around the Arabian Peninsula before? Uh, the birth of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. All right, Persians and the, Byzant and the Byzantines. The Persians. What was their religion? There you go. Yeah, Zoroastrianism, and the religion of the of the Byzantines or the Romans. Yeah, the Romans were were Christians. Uh, Catholic, not Catholics. I'm sorry. Um, Eastern Orthodox Christian. Uh, name? Can you name two of the the two primary sources of Sita? In order, please. The first one and the second. Right. Um, Quran and then the Hadith. Right. Quran, the Quran, and then and then the Hadith. 
And this one may take a little bit of thinking. Why is why are the um, the the prerequisites prerequisites? Oh Lord of mercy! Why is it less? Why why are the um, the stories of the Siddha? Why is it taken? Why are they not as stringent of on taking the stories of the Siddha as they are with taking the Hadith? Uh, for reports in the Siddha, why is it that scholars are much more lenient? regarding which reports of Sido that they'll take compared to how strict and rigid they are with the reports of the Hadith. Why is there such a difference in how much authenticity we give, we give them? Right. Yeah, the chain of narration is not always reliable in the Sido and in the Hadith. And, um, there are many Hadith that, do, that have unreliable chains of narration, but what is the primary reason why why uh, a scholar who is writing a book on Sita would be much more lenient with it about taking a certain story about the life of Muhammad than he would be if he was compiling a book of ha- uh, an original book of Hadith. Why would he be much more lenient about that? Give it a few minutes. Basically, remember that. Well, the, the reason is because the Sita will not be used for. Uh, rulings. It will not be used for fatwa. You're not going to use. You're not going to make a ruling based on a book of Sita. But people will make rulings based on a book of Hadith. Hadith is the second source of legislation after the Quran, whereas Sita is not. The Sita, the Sita that is reported in the Hadith, yes, that would be. But a book of Sita in and of itself would not be used as a source of legislation. And so the Quran and the Hadith would be. All right. Um, okay. Any other questions right now? For now? Alhamdulillah. Any other questions? Okay. All right. Uh, I do have... Let me see if I... See if I can have enough time. There is a... A link that you guys can go to to listen to a lecture I gave a, a while ago about the the um, uh, pre-Islamic Arabia. I gave it a while ago, and you can download if you want to. You don't want to, don't. You don't have to download anything, but it's just something that you can use. Inshallah, I'll have it for you in just a second. Um, you can use this link for those of you who came from uh, um, Islamic learning materials from my website. You know, you should probably you would already receive this. If you haven't received it, you'll receive it soon. But for those of you who, you know, just meeting me for the first time, then you can use this inshallah and it'll be a help for um help you understand what we're over what we just went over as well. If I could ever find here we go. Online degrees class um well when I take is Islamic online university, it is it is very good. So, I mean, I'm learning a lot from it. Um, the beginning, the first couple of years, at least for me, the first couple of years, you know, some of it I've already been through already. So it's not as, um, so some of it I'm, I'm just like refresher course from what I've done as a kid. But it's still pretty good. And also, Islamic Online University also has a free section. I mean, the actual Islamic Online, online, Islamic online University itself is not really expensive. It's like $60 for six classes for all semester. It's not really bad. But if you don't want to pay anything at all, it does have um, it has a diploma course. Uh, you can take that the diploma course, and it gives you a understanding of 
certain basic, you know, basic subjects in Islam, uh, Dawah, and a few other things. So it's really, it's a really good thing to do. But if you can take the diploma, the, the degree course, then I recommend you doing it because, but it is a real class. So you gotta be, you know, you know, do that. Do the if you're ready for a real, for a real um, permanent class, then you can do that. But you know, you gotta take it seriously because it can take up a lot of time. Um, let me give you a couple more links. Other than that, I know there are others. I just haven't done them all. I know there's, um, you know, Baina, uh, uh, Numan Ali Khan. I really like Numan Ali Khan. I like his uh, lectures and stuff, and I like his talks. Um, but his stuff is more expensive, and I don't think it's online either. I think you gotta go have to go actually have to go to Dallas for it. So it's, it's not really easy to do for everyone else. Um, Michigan University. I never heard of that one, but uh, I never heard of that one. Uh, but there's also um. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the ones I, that I'm familiar with. There's another thing about a lot of these classes. Online classes are very; they can be very expensive. And I understand why they got their, um, they have their, you know, they got to pay for their teachers and stuff like that. But you know, some of them are very expensive. Not right now, girl. All right, um, I'm doing this from home, and my daughter is screaming for me, so. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to have to to leave now, inshallah. All right, if there are any other questions, you can send them straight to me by email. I'm going to put my email in here. Um, you can send them to me by email there. If you have any other questions, just email them to me, and you know I'll try to answer them as best as I can, inshallah. If I don't know something, I'll tell you I don't know, and I'll try to find out from someone who does know. All right, inshallah. Remember, most classes I will have to end exactly at 3 o'clock, um, you know, but inshallah, for now, we're, we're good. All right, Yazakal Khairan, Awayakum, and may Allah reward us all and reward you all. Subhanahu Rabbika, Rabbin Izzati, Amin Sifun, Wa Salamun, Ala Al Mursaleen, Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen.